head into the Ringerverse to stay up to date with all things superheroes and nerd culture entertainment. Hosted by a rotating lineup of superfans at the Ringer, including Mallory Rubin and Van Lathan, shows will provide instant reactions to blockbuster releases, insightful backstories on canon, and mind-bending theories, as well as fresh takes on the latest news and rumors. Check out the Ringerverse on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Happy holidays, media consumers, and welcome to Pressbox Friday. Brian Curtis of The Ringer here, along with producer Erica Cervantes. This year, we made four inductions into what you might call the Pressbox nonfiction pantheon. Back in January, we had John Krakauer talk about Into the Wild. Eric Schlosser described reporting and writing Fast Food Nation. And I was even able to get in a question or two to Bill Walton about David Halberstam's The Breaks of the Game. Today's entry in the nonfiction pantheon is a memoir. It's The Tinder Bar by J.R. Moringer. The Tinder Bar is the basis of a new movie starring Ben Affleck and directed by George Clooney. No disrespect to those guys, but to me, it will always be a book. Tinder Bar is an unbelievably well-written life story. We see Moringer at the beginning in Manhasset, Long Island as a kid whose father has disappeared from his life. We follow Moringer through his childhood all the way to Yale where he falls in love. And finally, to the newsroom of the New York Times, where his journalism career gets off to a wobbly start. So Moringer is one figure in the book. The other figure is a bar, a Manhasset bar called Publicans, a bar that features all these men who become surrogate dads in Moringer's life. If you've heard this pod, you've probably heard me say my dad died when I was 11 years old. As a kid, I remember searching sports radio stations for substitute male audio tracks, voices to fill that void in my life. Moringer found those voices at publicans, men throwing back drinks and talking about the New York Mets or old movies or even great literature. Moringer listened to those voices, and when he was old enough to drink, he joined them. And eventually, Publicans Bar itself became kind of a father figure to him. So doing a pod on a book like The Tender Bar is me telling you, you gotta read this. But first, I want to understand how it got written, how you plumb your own life for that kind of insight and beauty. Here's J.R. Moringer on the Tinder Bar. J.R., I love to start off by asking about a writer's early days in journalism. In this case, those days are actually in the Tinder Bar. Right. What was your first job at the New York Times like? Uh, I was a copy boy. That was my formal, my formal title. I worked the overnight shift, which then I think was um, 7 p.m. till... 2 a.m. ish, but it was pretty loose on the on the back end because sometimes if there was a big uh, disaster uh, or crime, we were sent out um, to cover that as copy boys and copy girls. Um, I don't know what they call them these days, um, but that but yeah, it was uh, not glorious. You know, a um, lot of fetching uh, food and coffee, a lot of answering phones, and and this will sound totally primitive uh, to a lot of people, but a lot of separating carbons. Um, that was a huge part of how, you know, there'd be, a, there'd be a machine that would spit out um, uh, a printout 
and it would have 10 copies and it would be your job for hours to separate those copies and fold them a certain way. Um, because believe it or not, editors all wanted it folded a certain way. Some liked it folded in thirds, others liked it folded in half, and then you drop that in there in basket. I mean, that was my start in journalism for, and I spent a long time doing those kinds of things. And the prize for being a copy boy during that period is you get a month-long audition as right. a reporter. Yeah. And you got sent out to write about the murder of a man named Stephen Kelly. Can you tell us what happened during that period? Um, yeah. Well, um, the long and the short of it is that I misspelled his name, uh, the family's name. And um, uh, I think I made the mistake <laughs> of taking it off the police report. And... Um, Police reports are just, you know, they're notorious, the, the, the spellings, the misspellings, um, because the police at the scene have other things to worry about besides, you know, correct spelling. Um, and I had a kind of a, I had a very weird exchange with the family. I did ask them how to spell their name. And I said, your name was spelled wrong in another newspaper. And they said, yeah. And I said, <laughs> I then said it's K-E-L-L-Y. And they were saying, yeah, back to me as if that was how it was spelled in the newspaper, but I thought that that was what the, anyway, we, we, I was not a very good communicator and I was nervous, you know, it was one of my first big stories. Um, so it was a series of errors, um, careless errors on my part. And I made the ultimate mistake, at least, you know, uh, it was a time when mistakes were viewed differently, I think. Um, uh, so the name appeared in the newspaper and it was wrong. And I remember feeling, uh, just uh, devastated. And I remember my bosses, my bosses being devastated. Um, it really felt like the end of my career. Um, and, and, uh, ultimately at the end of that audition, I mean, I, it did, it did weigh heavily on the minds of the editors who were trying to decide whether or not I was going to be promoted to full-time reporter. I was never told if that was decisive. Um, there were plenty of other things for them to find fault with in my performance. I mean, I was very young. I was very inexperienced. So I, it's not the only mistake I made. And for all I know, it, it may not have even made their top 10 list of mistakes. Um, but also, you know, as somebody who grew up feeling very self-conscious about my name, not only because it's difficult to pronounce, but also because I felt dissociated from it, um, I'm a junior. I'm named after a father I never knew that always created problems. I'd had a big beef with the New York Times about my byline. I didn't want uh, dots in JR because it's not my initials. It stands for junior. So I came to the, the whole question of identity and naming with a lot of emotional baggage. Um, I was not the kind of person who would shrug off making a mistake like that. And I was, you know, I was very hard on myself. I, I was a perfectionist. So. Um, you know, maybe I overrated their reaction. Uh, I just, I don't know. It was a very kind of, you know, a mysterious process about how you were promoted, why you weren't promoted. But uh, years later, when I sat down to write a memoir and I look back at my time at the New York Times, you know, it was one of the, it was one of the darkest uh, memories uh, It came rushing back to me. And that's um, just an experience you never want as a journalist to see your story in the paper the next day and to see an error that you made um, and to know it's going to have to be corre corrected and to know that it's going to mean a lot to the people that you wrote about. You know, when I mentioned to the sons of the, uh, of the man who was killed, 
uh, when I when I mentioned that to them that, that I noticed your dad's name was misspelled in another newspaper, you know, they looked sorrowful about it. So I thought to myself, I'm going to be the one to get this right. So then I, I went off and I, I misspelled it also. 1990, you go to the Rocky Mountain News, a paper that's now closed in Denver. And I heard this story once from Adam Schefter. Rocky Mountain <laughs> News is looking for its inaugural Colorado Rockies beat writer. The guy who gets the job is Tracy Ringlesby, legendary baseball guy. And the two runners up for the job were Adam Schefter and you. Is that true? Sort of. Um, I don't know that I was a runner up. Adam might have been a runner up, but um, I don't think I made runner up status. I um, I don't even think I was ever, you know, considered that seriously. Uh, uh, it was another audition situation. And uh, the audition uh, was you covered a World Series game from your home. You know, you, you watched the game and you wrote it up and you filed it just as if you were in the press box at the stadium. And, uh, and again, it was a case of, uh, just not knowing how to do that. You know, um, in this case, thank goodness, I wasn't learning on the job. I was just learning, you know, in my apartment, um, the sports editor at the time, <laughs> he just really had no use for my, for my copy. You know, I loved baseball. Um, I adored baseball and I found out that is not enough to make you qual to qualify you as a baseball writer. <laughs> Um, it was a shock to me. Wow. You mean you can love baseball this much and really stink at writing about baseball? Um, and I, I, I remember that conversation um, vividly with the sports editor where he told me that my, my copy was terrible. And I, and I also remember, again, just as, you know, just the same as the, the misspelling scandal at the New York Times, thinking my, my career, my life was over. I was pretty, pretty melodramatic in my, in my youth. But I, I really thought that this was, you know, a lifelong dream and it was, uh, and I'd fallen short and, you know, what now? Um, looking back, I don't know how Adam feels, but looking back, uh, it's just about the best thing that ever happened to me um, in my life. <laughs> I really, I was not cut out to be um, a baseball beat writer, you know, uh, traveling around with a team. Those guys are great at what they do, um, but they have a different metabolism than I do. I like to take my time with a story. Um, you know, I thought I was applying to be Roger Angel and that is not, that was not the job description. It was, it was run and gun. And, uh, just it's, it's, it's a miracle that, because I, I, I do think that before I tried out, I had a shot, you know, I'd done good work at the paper. So, you know, uh, perish the thought that I like, I might've done a good job of covering that world series from my apartment and, you know, and gotten signed on as the number two baseball writer, because that would have been a, a disaster for everybody involved. You've written lots about sports at newspapers and then later at places like ESPN magazine. What's interesting to you about sports writing? Uh, well, you know, early on in my life, uh, when I thought it would be just great to be a writer, I kind of made myself a promise that, you know, I would always find a way to write about sports. Sports is just central to my life. I've always loved sports. Um, you know, I, as I say, I love baseball, but I, I love all sports. And it just, um, I don't know what sports can, fan can really explain why they love it, why it's so important, but it is just absolutely, um, you know, it's, it's critical to just 
my enjoyment of life. And it means so much. Like it, it's not just a diversion. It's not just entertaining, but I find tremendous meaning, metaphorical meaning, you know, philosophical meaning in sports, you know, the careers of athletes are, are kind of analogs for our journey through life. Um, the athletes I admire kind of teach me something about, you know, how to live your life. Um, and, and I, and I, I see a tremendous relationship between athletics and writing, you know, as, as a lot of writers have, you know, that, that, um, that battle with your own, um, your own self, that, that, uh, constant struggle to kind of think clearly and to perform in the moment and to be in the moment and, and to, um, uh, and to be selfless. I think there's a lot in sports about, you know, um, putting the team ahead of your own uh, interests. And I think that that's, there's a lot of, there's a lot that can be learned by, by writers and that. So, um, I always wanted to write about sports and I've been lucky that I've always been able to either write about it full time or come back to it periodically. Um, there's a lot of sports in not only my memoir, but in books that I, I write, you know, with other people. Um, and so, you know, I, I hope that always continues to be true. Um, that I'm always able to dip in and out of, of writing about this, this subject that I love, and, um, this inexhaustible source of pleasure for me. Speaking of which, you get to the LA Times in 1994. That's where you meet a man who claimed to be the boxer Bob Satterfield, big heavyweight from the 1950s. How'd you get onto that story? Uh, a police reporter named uh, Lynn Romney, Lee Romney, um, came to me one day i was sitting at my desk and uh, working on something else and she said she'd gotten this tip from the cops and um she knew i loved sports and she knew i loved boxing and um she knew i was looking for something to sink my teeth into and she said the cops say that there's this uh, great heavyweight from the 50s who's living on the streets right here in orange county and you know i i don't have time to chase this will, will you be, would you be interested? And I, you know, was out of the door like a shot. I mean, the, the golden era of boxing, you know, the AJ Liebling um, era of boxing, the idea that there was a great heavyweight sleeping on the streets. I, I wanted to know all I could know about that. And I found him in pretty short order and uh, started a friendship with him. And that began an absolutely <laughs> uh, insane uh, adventure um, because uh his name was Bob Satterfield. He was uh, tremendously famous in the 50s, um, fought some real marquee fights and, and knew or fought some of the greatest fighters of, of the era. And as I was getting ready to publish a huge profile of this guy, um, I discovered that Bob Satterfield had died in Chicago some years before. Um, so that was a problem because if Bob Satterfield had been buried in Chicago, um, who was I spending all this time with? Um, and I ran out and I gave him a test. I, I said, you know, he went by the name Champ on the streets. Um, and I said, Champ, everybody says you're dead. So what's the story? And he said, um, you know, I'm the champ. I'm the one. I, you know, who says that? So I gave him a test on Bob Satterfield that only Bob Satterfield would be able to pass. And he got an A+. Plus. So now I had a real problem. Who did they bury in Chicago? And who was this guy I was talking to? And my editor at the time was uh, Marty Baron, you know, the famous legendary Marty Baron. And to his, to his credit, uh, <laughs> amazingly, um, Marty let me chase that story, 
to its illogical conclusion and then write a huge you know behemoth i think 11,000 word piece about not just about who he was but how he'd fooled me why he'd fooled me all the weird emotional cross currents you know the, the my own baggage that i brought to it um and he ran that thing <laughs> at length in the paper and um you know, I'll, I'll be forever grateful to him for that, for that opportunity. And how many months passed between you finding the man claiming to be Satterfield and this actually appearing in the paper? Many, I mean, something close to, I'll, I'll say nine months, you know, um, if not more. Um, and I, I was haunted by it. There was just, this was, I mean, Google existed. This was 97, um, uh, Google existed, but it wasn't, you know, it's, there was an evolution to, uh, what we have, that we, what we take for granted today. You could, you could not really just go to Google and ask things. There was more of a dance and there wasn't, just wasn't as much information there. Um, and, uh, so it was, it was really the kind of mystery that maybe you could clear up today in five minutes, but back then it took five months and it took flying around the country and it took, um, uh, just really, uh, figuring out who was in the ground in Chicago and who was on this park bench in Orange County and how had their paths ever crossed? Why did this guy in Orange County, if he, if he was Satterfield, you know, who'd they bury? If he wasn't Satterfield, how did he know exactly who, you know, everything there was to know about Satterfield? Um, So it was a great mystery. And I, I think that gives the piece some suspense, but it was pretty experimental to let me bring all these, you know, all these parts of me to it. And that, and, and I was, I was licensed in doing that by an absolutely brilliant editor. The the greatest editor I've ever worked with in my life, Kit Rackless. He was the second break apart from having Marty as my, you know, overall boss. The second break I caught was having Kit Rackless as my day-to-day editor on that. I mean, he's ask anyone who's ever worked with him. He's a straight genius. And um, it was his idea to, you know, write about why this haunts you, write about why a guy leaving, disappearing, why identity among men is so, is so, uh, tormenting to you. Uh, so, um, yeah, I was, I was aided by a lot of people in that, in that story. Yeah. That's right on the edge for newspapers stylistically in 1997. No, lots of I, 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 lots story. of I, 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 yes. Lots of I, 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 um, so much I, 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 <laughs> and, and, and so many side roads, so much, so many digressions. It was, I mean, it was, it was experimental. Uh, it was, you know, a total unicorn for, for newspapers back then. I mean, I don't even know today where, where a piece like that would run, you know, if anywhere other than your personal, your personal blog. Um, but um, we felt at the time that we were doing something that we were trying something pretty cool. We, we, you know, we thought this could really fail spectacularly, but let's have fun failing, you know, if that's to be the case. Resurrecting the champs published in May of 97. How did that change your fortunes at the LA times? Um, There are a few pieces that I've written, you know, in my journalism life where I can really point to and say, you know, um, that one changed my life. Um, And that, that is pretty close to the top of the list. You know, I, I was languishing in the Orange County Bureau of the LA Times. I just was not happy there. They weren't super happy with me. I wasn't finding subjects that inspired me. Um, just I just wasn't happy. I was so unhappy. 
that I applied for a job in the PR department at Fox TV. I mean, if that, you know, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, suddenly I kind of felt like I found what I want to do or maybe just reminded myself what I want to do or, uh, you know, apart from working with Marty and Kid a lot. Um, and then the newspaper, you know, the, the piece got such a positive reaction. The newspaper promoted me to national correspondent. And suddenly I wasn't in Orange County anymore. I was in Atlanta covering, you know, the deep South, uh, and, and doing it in a very autonomous way. You know, I got to decide, uh, what was interesting and, and where to go and, and just started, um, really just, uh, I don't know, just started growing. I think that I finally started to get a little traction as a reporter and, and as a writer. I mean, there were, there were struggles. I, there was a steep learning curve with that job too. But um, I think I finally felt like I was on the right path for the first time in a long time as a journalist. As, and it's all a result of that piece. Come back to the LA Times in a bit, but take us back to your childhood in Manhasset on Long Island. What kind of bar was Publicans? Yeah, well, when I was, when I was quite young, it was called Dickens, and there was a big silhouette of Charles Dickens on the sign and, and also on the jerseys of the softball team. And, and, you know, that kind of triangulated with um, the leather-bound set of Dickens in uh, my grandparents' house. And I, so I was asking people, who's this Dickens guy and why is everything named after him? And I was told, you know, he's a writer who has this uh, incredibly fertile imagination and uh, dreams up all these different people and characters and, and writes these huge books. And, you know, I became aware of Great Expectations and Oliver Twist, probably, you know, through the movies first. But so, yeah, the bar was called Dickens first. And then they remodeled the bar and they changed the name to Publicans, which kind of just really, I didn't know what that, I didn't know a publican was a, uh, an innkeeper or a tavern, basically a bartender. I just, you know, but that was, it was called Publicans for m- much of my young adult life. And, um, and the bar was kind of everything to me. I had no father growing up. My dad was a rock and roll DJ in New York. So I knew what he sounded like. I heard him on the radio uh, all the time, but I didn't know what he looked like. And um, I was desperate for replacements. Um, I, I was just, I was the only son of a single mom who would leave me with my grandma when she went off to work. So I, you know, I had a lot of, uh, I had, I had those two strong women in my life and I felt uh, very loved, you know, and I was very well cared for, but I really felt this deep need for, you know, some male presence, a male voice. And pretty early on found them in that bar where my uncle was the kind of senior bartender. Um, and so with him as my guide, I, I started to meet guys in that bar and started to spend time with them and go to the beach with them. And so the bar just absolutely became um, central to me. Like it was, I, I idealized it. I, I, I thought of it as a place where, you know, father surrogates existed for me. And um, I, had, I had the most um, Disney-like uh, uh, vision of the bar. Like, you know, that's where cool guys hang out. Um, guys who pay attention to me, guys who tell me stories, guys who, you know, buy me Sports Illustrated. Um, guys who ask me questions, you know, the way only older guys ask, you know, little boys questions, you know. Um, so it was, the bar was really everything to me. You mentioned your uncle, Charlie, who was the bartender there. What was he like behind the bar at Publicans? 
he was so eccentric and um, so funny and so brilliant. Um, he had, you know, he was, he was a great athlete in high school um, and then spent a year or two in college and that didn't work out. I think he came home on a motorcycle and crashed the motorcycle coming home. You know, I mean, that, that James Dean kind of guy. So by the time I knew him, he was lanky. He lost all of his hair to alopecia and he was very self-conscious about it. So the bar was a place where he not only hid, but also felt loved and accepted. It was dark and it was smoky and people just kind of looked past this thing that he was so self-conscious about. Um, and he had, you know, with a, with a couple of drinks in him and the bar in front of him, between him and, and the outer world, he had so much swag. You know, it wasn't just that he was a great storyteller and had great stories to tell, stories of his own life, but also stories he heard at the bar. But he had an absolute way of telling a story. The, the way he used language, um, the inflections, the facial expressions, the, the cigarette as a prop. I mean, the guy was just theater. And so, um, you know, a, a legend in my, in my hometown, even people who didn't, who didn't um, go to the bar uh, knew Chaz. Uh, my Uncle Charlie was known far and wide as, as Chaz or Goose. That was another nickname for him. And I thought this was so cool. I mean, my dad was famous. His, his face was on billboards and buses. You know, he was, he was one of the good guys. That was a, a, the name for a group of really famous DJs who came along with rock and roll, the good guys, I think WABC or WNBC. Um, and so my dad was famous, but Uncle Charlie was more kind of palpably famous. He was really famous. Like there's some story my, my cousin McGraw tells about Chaz being driven around far afield of Manhasset, like, you know, somewhere out on the island. They got lost and they, uh, they stopped and they asked a stranger for, they rolled down the window and said, can you tell us how to get to somewhere? And this person on the side of the road said, hey, Chaz, yeah, you just go down here. And you, I mean, a <laughs> hundred miles from Manhasset, this person just knew, immediately knew my uncle. So um, I felt like royalty kind of, you know, to be the nephew of Chaz McGuire that, that counted for something. And then when I could start going to the bar, uh, when I could walk in the bar and say, you know, Hey, uncle Charlie and get a kiss and get my hair, you know, messed up <laughs> and get a drink put in front of me by, you know, this, the crowned prince of uh, Manhasset that was, that all felt pretty good. So it's a surrogate. So it's a, a group of surrogate fathers. And then it's also this peek into the forbidden adult world when you're a kid. Yeah. yeah and these guys talked about things that my mom wasn't really, you know, interested in, you know, like, like, like the Brooklyn Dodgers and Rocky Marciano and, and uh, Norman Mailer and, and uh, uh, you know, just uh, they, their point of view was it's that you need that as, as a, as a boy becoming a man, you just, you need to hear that kind of that male conversation. And I was, you know, I, I joke about it. Sometimes I say my, um, my mom trusted these guys more than she, <laughs> more than she might've more than she should have. And um, you know, they, they were not, you know, the advice they gave out was not hundred percent sterling. You know, it was not, this was not the Manhattan project, but I don't mean to make it seem like more than it was. But the point is that to me at the time, it seemed like more than it was. And, and I was very lucky that these guys, they're all of them, their hearts were in the right place. You know, they, they weren't, you know, um, they, all of these guys weren't exactly thriving and they hadn't had, um, you know, 
the best luck in life, all of them. But um, they were really, they were good guys and they had um, strong uh, moral compass, uh, each of them. And, and um, even though, you know, uh, they had their limits, uh, I was quite lucky in that um, they were really a good group. They really took good care of me. Um, uh, so I, you know, it was uh, unconventional <laughs> and it was, uh, <clears throat> it was risky. But my mom thought and told me years later that, you know, better, better guys who were, you know, limited or not exactly, you know, conventionally uh, role models than, than none at all. You know, she worried who I might find on my own, if not for my uncle and these guys. And I think that's a legit worry. You know, I think a lot of, a lot of boys in my position with no father looking for a surrogate can find themselves in a really bad situation. You know, we know that to be true. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, they, they were really, I, I look back and I, when I talk about them, I'm filled with love and, and affection for them all the time, even though my, my cousin McGraw, who had the same relationship ship with them as I did, you know, we laugh sometimes about the, <laughs> the, the advice they gave out, um, their, their worldview. It wasn't perfect, but at the time it was so essential to us. You mentioned the Dickens silhouette and the Dickens volumes at the bar. What's so entertaining to me about the memoir, one of the things is that these people really like to read a lot of denizens of the bar. They really like words. They actually use that dictionary that's behind the bar <laughs> everywhere. They actually pull it down and open it up. Did you, is this you learning to be a storyteller when you're sitting there a little bit later, learning to keep up with those guys, compete with those guys in terms of being able to tell a story and tell it well? You know, I don't really know if I, I know that I learned to love stories um, and, and to love books from those guys, but my, my memory um as limited and as flawed as it, as it must be, it, my memory is mostly listening and, and, and watching them tell stories. I didn't, I didn't speak up too much, you know, not until much later when I started going there um, after college, when I was a copy boy at the, at the New York times, you know, I, I started speaking more, but it was a long apprenticeship of just listening to these guys and loving the way they told stories, loving the way they cracked each other up. Um, loving the way they would carry, uh, you know, a book with them at all times, along with like every newspaper, you know, uh, we'd stop off at, uh, Tiamo, uh, stationery store on the way out of town, on the way to the beach or on the way to Shea stadium. And they'd go in, they'd buy every newspaper in the English language, <laughs> the daily news, the New York post, the New York times, the wall street journal Newsday, the racing forum. I mean, it was just uh, how could I not become, uh, you know, a newspaper journalist? And then on top of that slab of newspapers, um, they'd have a paperback, uh, you know, uh, and um, then on the way to the beach, they'd talk about not only the news, but also what, what they were reading and the way they um, revered books and writers, you know, Pete Hamill and I just, and Breslin and I just, that, that got in. So I, I listened to that more than, you know, uh, I never really felt like I was auditioning for them, but, um, yeah, you know, uh, they were, they were all, maybe they weren't frustrated writers, but they were all great readers. And that dictionary behind the bar got pulled out 20 times a night to settle a bet or because somebody used a word wrong. Um, I think there's a story and I think I included it in the memoir. I used the word panache in a story at the New York times and, and the copy editor just, I mean, 
absolutely handed it to me. I'd used it wrong, you know, and um, I shouldn't have even been, I shouldn't have been used. You should need a permit to use the word panache, you know, in a newspaper story. So I'd used it wrong. And I went back to the bars, ashamed of myself and down on myself. Uncle Charlie said, well, what does the word mean? And I said, I'm, I'm still not, <laughs> I'm still not sure. So he grabbed a dictionary and he, from behind the bar, massive dictionary held together with electrical tape. And he dropped it on the bar next to my drink and said, find out, learn something. And he walked away and I opened the dictionary and, and panache was circled and someone had written Chaz next to the word. And when he came back, I said, did you, did you? <laughs> This is unbelievable. Did you know that somebody, and he looked, he was so unflappable. He said, huh, imagine that. And it didn't really phase him, but he did, he did have panache. And that was proof positive that that dictionary was um, well-loved, uh, well-used. I wonder what became of it, you know, when the bar went out of business. Wish I had it today. So you mentioned being a young journalist and going in there. What kind of needs is publicans filling for you during that period? Uh, well, booze and cigarettes, uh, that was a big need at that point in my, in my life. But, um, you know, for me, I was punching above my weight. You know, I, I was lucky enough to get a job as a copy boy at the New York times, but you know, I just wasn't ready. Um, I, you know, even getting food was, <laughs> was a challenge for getting the order, right. Never mind getting the facts right in a story. So I needed encouragement. I needed handholding. I needed guys to tell me, you know, just take a breath, just take it one story at a time. Um, I needed to just, uh, I just needed to be with people who were loyal to me and who kind of believed in me. Um, that was, that was really critical because I was, I was filled with self-doubt and it was legit self-doubt. You know, I was in a job that was, uh, that was over my head. And, um, so it, it filled a need that I certainly wasn't aware at the time that it was, that it was fulfilling. Um, to have a place where you could go at the end of a shift at the New York Times where, you know, you were, you were told either implicitly or explicitly that you are no good <laughs> to have a place to go after that and have guys, you know, either talk to you about other things or just, you know, hear about, hear about your day or to hear about their day and realize it's going to be okay. That was vital. When did it occur to you to start taking notes on what people in the bar were saying? I forever. I mean, there were, you know, I just thought these guys were so funny. And um, so my first attempts at short stories, I was either trying to turn things I'd heard about at the bar, the things I things I thought about at the bar, things I'd seen these guys. I was always taking things they said and putting them into fictional stories or just, you know, putting them in. I always kept notebooks and so I can't even remember a time when taking notes wasn't a part of my experience at that bar. Yeah. And your first idea was to write a novel about publicans? Forever. That was what I wanted to do. That was what I aimed to do and tried often to do. I, I tried to write short stories about the bar. Um, I tried to write a novel about the bar and tried and tried. It's funny because I read the first paragraph of The Tender Bar. We went there for everything we needed. We went there when thirsty, of course, and when hungry and when dead tired. We went there when happy to celebrate and when sad to sulk. You almost could start a novel <laughs> that way. You plunge very quickly into journalism and memoir. But it's, it could be the opening paragraph of a novel about publicans. Hmm. Well, um, maybe that, you know, maybe that novelistic sense never, never leaves you. You know, maybe that's why I saw the bar as, you know, more than it was uh, because I had, you know, I'd been... Uh, influence or corrupted by, by all the novels I'd read. Um, but, uh, you know, 
I, I remember that that opening did not come easily to me. I had to sit for a, uh, a long time and really think about um, what it was I was I wanted to say about that about that bar. Um, but when I did write that opening, um, you know, it felt like the first time I'd ever really put into words what that bar meant to not just to me, but to my, to my hometown. So behind every memoir is this idea that you can make your life interesting enough that other people will want to read about it. What got you across that threshold? Well, I don't know if that is the idea behind every memoir. You know, I think that might be the idea behind, um, the memoirs I like, you know, that the memoirist tried to find something in, in their life that, that would resonate with other lives. Um, but and then and that was certainly my aim, you know. Um, I wanted to, I wanted to write a memoir that wasn't about me per se, you know. Um, I wanted to write about the people who kind of saved me. Um, there's a line from an Auden poem um, uh, where he writes about the faces along the bar, and I wanted that to be the the title of my memoir. But there was a a history of working class. Uh, saloons in Chicago that had just used that title. But I mean, that was my, that was the spirit of my intent, you know, it was to write about the faces along the bar, um, to write about what they taught me and how they shaped me and, and how they saved me and how they led me astray. Um, so that, that was, that was my goal. And, and that grew out of some really magical sessions I had while on a Neiman fellowship at Harvard with a brilliant, wonderful guy named John Stauffer an expert in, in um, early American literature, among other things, but also in American memoir. And I knocked on his office door one day and told him I wanted to write a memoir and would he tutor me uh, privately? Can you imagine that if somebody came to you and <laughs> I mean, I just, I was laughing with my wife about this the other night. Imagine somebody knocking on your door, you're busy. And they say, I'm thinking about writing a book. Would you maybe uh, create a syllabus for me and spend, <laughs> I don't know, two or three days a week with me, two hours each, you know, shot and talk about books. And, and this, this wonderful guy said, yeah, that sounds like fun. I mean, I just, uh, it's just God love him for saying, but we had some amazing sessions and the memoirs that worked for both of us uh, were the ones that were about someone other than the narrator, you know, or about something other than the narrator. So that was my goal. I wanted to write a memoir about this place and about these people. And that's, that's where I wanted the, the, the focus to be. And then, you know, of course I would be the, I, I was the lens. So, I mean, my development would just be kind of implicit. It would be, you know, um, and, and the central person who saved me was the person who almost never went to the bar. And that was my mom, you know, so, but, but she sent me into that bar in a manner of speaking, and she saved me from that bar and, you know, um, uh, deliberately. Uh, so she is the kind of, She's the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega of, of the memoir. So you sit down, you have these conversations you've written down over the years. What other materials do you have to kind of reference as you try to write and, and construct this thing? Well, I had interviews. I was very lucky that, you know, um, pretty much everybody I wanted to write about was still there, still around. And um, they were as indulgent of me as John Stauffer. You know, when I went to them and said, I'm thinking about writing a book, will you sit down with me and try and recreate conversations we had or tell me that story you told me 10 years ago? Because I really, they said yes. They all said yes. And so I was doing this Neiman Fellowship at, at Harvard, but I was running back from Boston down to Manhasset uh, constantly, you know, interviewing people from my childhood. Um, you know, memoirs get a lot of grief for recreated dialogue. Um, it's, it's, 
an impediment to people enjoying a memoir. They said, how does somebody remember these conversations? You know, I don't know. I guess it doesn't occur to people that you can interview people from your life, that you can, you know, first of all, that you might've taken notes in real time, but, but also I went to people with fabulous memories. And, and I said, do you remember that time we talked about such and so, and together we would recreate. And sometimes I'd have a, a note on a bar napkin. And so the dialogue in my book is it's recreated, but not from thin air. It's recreated with, you know, almost always with the, with the help of um, the, the, the actual people involved. Um, and my cousin McGraw, a big part of the book, who was often shoulder to shoulder with me in the bar, um, has a photographic memory. So um, he was an invaluable uh, resource. You mentioned the people were helpful. What was their initial reaction when you told them you were going to write a book that was going to incorporate not only the bar, but all these conversations you'd had with them? It was pretty much all over the map. I mean, a lot of disbelief, like, you know, really? <laughs> so he's going to want to read about conversations we had in publicans 20 years ago. And you know, who could blame them for that? But also um, there was a lot of fear. I mean, if there's a place where off the record is the, is the guiding, <laughs> guiding mantra, it's in a bar on Long Island at 2 a.m., you know, um, Never mind Vegas, you know, what happened in publicans was, it was sacrosanct. Like we were all bound by a code of, you know, this, this goes nowhere. Um, so uh, I didn't need their permission. That's, you know, as a memoirist, you're entitled to write about where your life intersects with others. And a lot of memoirists do it. They throw people close to them under the bus all the time. But I felt just, uh, I, I wanted to do it. And I got permission from everybody. Um, it, even the people who are most fearful and had the most to lose. And there were some pretty, you know, some pretty dark secrets that people told me about, you know, in the bar. And um, I, I really had to, um, I had to be very careful with the, those people and say, you know, I just think this book is going to be less if you don't let me use that conversation, but I won't use it if you don't want me to, but please let me because, <laughs> because, and so um, I had that conversation a lot with a lot of different people and not one person ultimately denied me permission. And you say in the book, you know, you were not only able to get their, their sort of blessing and permission, but in all but a few cases, you were actually able to use their real names yeah. in the book. Yeah. So they were okay with that. We will, I will be portrayed again. It's sometimes it's not first name, last name, but I will be portrayed in this book under my real name. Somebody could come figure out who I am. And they were, they were at peace with that. Yes. Um, I, I, uh, Everybody said yes to that. And then in the case of like, you know, romantic relationships, um, I didn't even, I, I didn't even bother to ask for, for permission. I just felt like those relationships were so fraught, you know, they were, they were so private that I just, I didn't, I didn't even ask for permission. I just changed the names in those cases. So um, that's, that's the only, those are the only names that I, I changed in the book. And then, the, but the, guys I grew up with, uh, my father, my, all my family members, those are the real names, the actual names. And, um, and I think, you know, there was a moment where I thought about just changing all the different names. Why, why take a chance that someone's going to feel exposed or hurt? Um, but then I was, then I started to feel like we're veering into novel territory again. You know, once you, you know, once you change the names, then the reader says, well, how much else did you change? You know, so I had to draw the line. Uh, somewhere. And and that's where I chose to draw it. How much of the meaning of the place did you have in your head before you started writing? And how much was revealed when you sat down and actually started to write it? You know what? Those first drafts, it was really, I was exploring and I was questioning and doubting. I, I 
I had the same feeling that a lot of the the guys from the bar had like, uh, you know, is this, does this matter? Is this, does it matter to anyone besides me? Does it matter to me even? Um, and I didn't know enough about, I didn't know any other memoirists at the times. I didn't know that that's just part of the process that, you know, you're, you're doing it wrong as a memoirist. If you're not asking yourself who cares, um, because if, if you're not asking who cares, then you are, you know, you're in narcissism territory. If you're writing and thinking, oh, wait till the world hears this story from my life, <laughs> then that, that is the wrong attitude. Um, so it was a healthy self-loathing that I was feeling while I was writing. Um, who cares is a really, it's a painful question, but it's a valuable question to ask yourself while you're, while you're working on a memoir, because in answering that, you, you know, you, you try and, um, you try and position the narrative so that people do care. You know, you look for the things in your story that feel more universal. Um, so even though it's very uncomfortable to wonder if there's any relevance to the way you're spending your days, it, it's, it's very, very important that you do that. So there's the who cares question. I would also think there's the question of how much of yourself you're going to reveal. Did you catch yourself stopping at the 10 yard line to use a sports metaphor uh, at times and have to push yourself to reveal more? No, I, I felt that I was asking so much of so many people, you know, my uncle, uh, deeply private person. My, my mom was, uh, just an incredibly private person, introverts, both of them. Um, and the guys in the bar, it's it, even the ones with the most flamboyant personalities, you know, they were all hiding from one thing or another. Um, so to ask them to let me use their stories, I, I had to, I had to settle the question of whether or not I was going to be brave about what I revealed. And the memoirs, again, that resonated for me and John Stoffer were the ones where the narrator was not just overcoming a certain reluctance, but just, but just brave, just, you know, the, it just felt like a, a, a settled question before the, the first page ever got written. I'm going to tell you the truth about myself that you can feel that I think from a narrator, like, um, and I think that's so important. Um, when you, when you're reading a memoir and you feel like things are being withheld from you, very off-putting and, uh, it, you just think what's, what's the point here? So, um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't have to push myself. I had to have that talk with myself before I ever started writing. Like, are you ready to, are you ready to do this? Are you ready to go here? And um, as a journalist, I'd been writing so many, so often about people, you know, uh, trying to imagine my way into their life. So it was kind of a relief for me to just to know, you know, uh, and to not have to, to not have to ask permission, to not have to imagine. Just so I think that was that was the the stronger feeling, like oh, I have access to these facts and these stories. Um, rather than a kind of squeamishness about it. Um, and I was well, I was well past those events. So I'd kind of forgiven myself, my mistake for my mistakes, you know, most of them. Um, and, and, um, I, I, I'd done the emotional work. Like I, I, the, I was cried out, you know, and I, um, processed the traumas and the disappointments. I was ready to write and, uh, I was, I was ready to reveal. How long did it take you to write the book? About two years. Uh, uh, with I would take, uh, I, I wrote a good chunk of it while I was on a Neiman Fellowship, and then I went back to the LA Times, and so I would write at night and on the weekends uh, while doing my full time job at the LA Times. 
um, which was not easy. And um, so it wasn't two full years, but I, I think it was, yeah, it was about maybe maybe closer to three by the time you factor in, you know, uh, the the delays, the editing, and the, so so on and so forth. Tinder Bar is published in 2005, and the people who are in the book reacted how? Um, for the most part, um, very positively. I, I was so heartened. Um, one of the first things I did was a bookstore event in Manhasset, and um, big turnout, you know, and um, maybe, I think there were 300 people there that night, and I, I started off by saying, you know, I wanted to acknowledge the people in the book who were there in the crowd, and so I said names and people like um, Bobo and Bob the Cop and, you know, they stood up and McGraw and uh, there were gasps in the crowd because people had kind of forgotten that these were real people. And um, so standing up and getting a round of applause, you know, that was, um, that was, that was a good feeling for these, for these people. And it felt so good for me to be able to like kind of pay homage to them publicly. And then, you know, my mom is, is just, she's, she's such a, she's the hero of the book or the heroine. And um, so the reaction to her was so heartwarming, so gratifying for me. You know, she just, she got fan mail and she got phone calls in the middle of the night from single moms who were, you know, at their wits end about what to do, how, how to, how to make it, how to survive. And um, when she came with me to a bookstore event, she was just surrounded by people, you know, wanting, you know, a few minutes of her time, wanting her autograph. It was just, um, so the reaction from her was just uh, she she never expected to get such um, approval in such a public way. She never wanted it, never sought it. Um, but but you can see how you could you could see at the time how much it meant to her, and that was boy that was worth the the price of admission for me. Your uncle Charlie is such a huge figure in your life and in the book, and you write at the end of the book that he essentially vanished. Did you ever reconnect with him? He did vanish. He disappeared, and then you know he had such a flair for the dramatic. He um, he reappeared on the first day of my book tour. Very sick. Um, he he turned up at a uh, a hospital. Uh, I think I remember. And then um, sadly, he died on the very last day of my book tour. So I was going on stage at the Miami Book Fair and got word backstage that he had just passed. It was classic uncle charlie you know so um in the middle of the book tour i ran off and saw him he was too he was too ill too weak to read the book which was which was really uh, um so sad um but the nurse is taking care of him in this um kind of hospice situation um uh they were reading the book at the nursing station and um i i, I liked to think that uh you know it influenced the way they like they took care of him that they thought or they saw that he really mattered to a lot of people. Um, so um, that felt, I don't know, that felt important that the book came along in time for the last people who were with him to know about him. And, um, you know, I think, I, I do think they took extra good care of him because they saw um, how essential he was to me and a lot of other people. You're still at the LA Times when the book came out. Did you see this book as potentially being something to propel you out of newspapers and on to another part of your career? No, not at all. I, I mean, I didn't. I wasn't looking for a, a way out of newspapers. I, I thought I would write for newspapers forever, and um, but I had a view of of newspaper writing that was very influenced by my, you know, 
hero worship of guys like Pete Hamill. Like you write for newspapers and, um, and then you take a break and you write a book and then you go back to newspapers. And, you know, it's, that's, that seemed like the life. So this just seemed like part of what you do as a newspaper writer kind of. Um, and, and so, yeah, no, that was the farthest thing from my mind. Um, uh, having the book provide a way out of newspapers, but that ultimately wound up being what happened. It's a year later that Andre Agassi calls having read the tender bar. A little more than a year, I think. Um, and I was in San Francisco doing a story, um, uh, about a restaurant, um, run by ex cons. And so, um, you know, uh, once again, I was writing about a restaurant that, you know, had this tremendous sense of community and, and, um, I got a phone call and a very familiar voice <laughs> said, hello, uh, this is, my name's Andre. I play tennis. I'm trying to reach share. I said, and at the moment he was just, he was uh, everywhere in America because he was playing his last U.S. Open. And so, I mean, America was having like Andre mania, you know, it was the end of a really um, iconic career. And people were considering him and placing him in his, you know, in the tennis pantheon. And um, there was just an Andre love-in going on. So the idea that this person everybody was talking about would, would call at that moment, I said, Andre Agassi? I thought it was one of my friends just, you know, doing a bit. And um, yes, this is, a, oh, you've heard of me? He's so humble. And I said, yeah, that's, I've heard of you. Yes. Wow. And he invited me to his final U.S. Open to sit um, with his wife and his family in their box. And, um, he said he wanted to talk to me about my book, which he was reading. Uh, and he was thinking about writing his own memoir and wondering if I would help. And I said, thank you. No, um, I'm working on this story. And, um, then I went and ultimately had dinner with him in Vegas and he kind of made a more formal proposal to, to do this together. And I said, thank you. That's, you know, but no. And, uh, I want to write for newspapers forever. And, uh, but a friendship kind of began. And then uh, things started to fall apart for me at the LA Times. The paper was going through a lot of turmoil. And um, I called him and said, can I change my note to yes? And he was, he was so fabulous. He, he was so excited. And I moved to Vegas. This is just, uh, I actually moved to Las Vegas and uh, lived down the road from him. And we, we started working on, uh, we had one goal, which was to write a different kind of a sports memoir. And we had no other goals and um, it felt crazy. It felt, it felt insane. Um, every single friend that I had at the time tried to talk me out of it. Um, I, you mentioned uh, Adam Schefter. He was at a dinner at the Super Bowl in Arizona that year. Um, big round table of some of the most famous sports writers. And one of the sports writers said, okay, Jair has been offered this, this uh, collaborating gig with Andre Agassi. And our job is to not leave this table tonight until we've talked him out of doing that. We've all done collaborations. We've all sworn we would never do them again. We can't leave this restaurant until we've... And we went around the table and, and each sports writer told stories about working with famous athletes and growing to despise the athletes and vice versa and almost coming to blows and being dis just disrespected, disregarded. We were crying. We were laughing so hard about one story was worse than the next. And I still did it. And Andre proved them all wrong. He was a total, total champ. I'll end here, JR. How did the task of writing your own memoir compare with the task of helping him write his? 
um, in many ways the same and in many ways so profoundly different. Um, you know, ultimately you're trying to tell a great story. So it, it really does start and end in the same place. But um, the, thing, the thing I learned is we, we are all the same, but we're also, we're all really different. And so there were so many moments where I'd be trying to describe Andre's motivation, you know, why he did what he did. And there was a long period of self-sabotage with him. Um, and, and I couldn't, I couldn't get there. Um, and we kept trying and trying and he got me there. And, and through that process, I, I realized, you know, what a gap there is between us and other people. And, and, but it's not an unbridgeable gap. It just takes work and it takes time and it takes patience. And that this just, it gave me a, a broader, richer sense of, um, you know, what you can learn about people just through dogged effort at your empathy skills. Um, and, and how, you know, with, with the tender bar, it was a memory quest, like closing my eyes every day and trying to put myself back in the year 1974, or 1984. And with Andre, it was closing my eyes and trying to put myself on center court at Wimbledon. And, you know, so different kind of imagination. Um, and, but, and, and, and using empathy muscles that I hadn't ever used before. Um, but, and, but ultimately it wound up informing, you know, all my writing like that, that those skills that you build, tr- trying to figure, trying to think your way into another person's life, they, they're so applicable to so many, you know, different parts of what I do, whether it's journalism or my own writing or re- whether it's writing a novel, I, I just found, uh, the experience with Andre was just, um, it had it had so many applications uh, down the road. Never mind that I came out of it, you know, with a a lifelong friendship that you know I, I cherish to this day. I mean, we were we became brothers through the process. Um, it was really scary. We were <laughs> really trying to do something that hadn't that we felt like hadn't been done before. And and you know, uh, as with the tender bar, you know, we just we thought this could be this could be a disaster. But well, let's have fun failing. J.R. Moringer, thanks for coming on the Press Box. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to J.R. Moringer and to the fabulous bookman of Orange County, California for selling me yet another copy of The Tender Bar. I'm Brian Curtis. Production magic by Erica Cervantes. If you like this episode, I humbly ask you to share it with all the other nonfiction book lovers on social media. And speaking of sharing, I want to announce next month's inductee into the nonfiction pantheon. It's John Lee Anderson's fantastic biography, Che Guevara, A Revolutionary Life, which turns 25 years old next year. I told a friend of mine I was doing Che, and she said, oh my God, that book changed my life. I want to ask you, how many 700-page biographies can you actually say that about? This is one of them. So that's coming up in January. I want to do one of these great book pods every month next year. So stay tuned for those and please keep me honest. After New Year's Day, David Shoemaker and I are back with more lukewarm takes about the media. In the meantime, read some journalism, haunt your favorite used bookstore, and have a fantastic holiday and a great new year. Talk to you soon.